Hello and welcome to Policing a Free Society, a new podcast series where we discuss the intersection of history and criminal justice in the United States. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. This is the first episode in a hopefully regular podcast series that will try to tackle the oftentimes tense relationship between the government's police powers and the constitutional rights of American citizens. The title of this series comes from the title of a book published by Herman Goldstein in 1977, which was among the first to engage with that tension in a way that resonated with policymakers, police forces, and the general public across the country. In that book, Goldstein wrote, quote, There is a basic pervasive conflict between crime-fighting and constitutional due process which is inherent in the police function in a free society. The police are expected to deal aggressively with criminal conduct, but must do so in accordance with procedures that prohibit them from engaging in practices which, from the standpoint of poorly informed citizens, appear to be the most expeditious and potentially most effective. End quote. The tension between police powers and constitutional rights is on dramatic display this week, as hundreds of thousands of Americans took to the streets to protest the death of George Floyd, a 46-year-old African-American man, at the hands of police officers in Minneapolis on May 25th. As of this recording, those protests have lasted for a week and have no end in sight. And alongside those protesters came looters and other troublemakers whose destructive activities sparked an inconsistent and at times very harsh response from police in numerous cities and from politicians at the federal, state, and local levels. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jeff Zarnick, a former police officer and associate dean of criminal justice at SNHU, and soon-to-be doctor Jonathan Wesley, associate dean for philosophy at SNHU. In this episode, we're going to talk a bit about our own responses to the news of Floyd's death and why we think this event sparked such large-scale protests when earlier events did not. First, I'm going to let everybody introduce themselves. So, Jeff, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, Dr. Jeff Sarnick, Associate Dean, Criminal Justice Social Sciences. I've been with Southern New Hampshire University now for seven years as the developer of the online criminal justice program and the, quote, new program, along with a very healthy representation of great people. I am a retired police officer. I worked with the city of Manchester, New Hampshire Police Department for 23 years. And we also have on the line Jonathan Wesley. Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Jonathan Wesley. I'm an associate dean here at SNU uh, in liberal arts and diversity, equity, and inclusion. I am an African-American male who is queer and also an ordained clergyman. Um, I have worked in the criminal justice system and juvenile justice for several years in my past. And um, I love talking about transformative social change. Well, we certainly have some transformative, well, hopefully transformative <laughs> social change happening in real time here, which is one of the reasons that we're talking here today. We wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the current situation that we're existing in. So we've got um, the, uh, the, the death of George Floyd. Uh, we've got protests that have been breaking out across the country in response to that. We've got police responding to the protests. And then, of course, there's all the political games that are kind of happening around all of that. So <laughs> if this isn't transformative social change, then, oh, my God, I don't think I ever want to encounter it because this is this, this can be quite overwhelming. Agreed. All right. So first off, let's talk about the uh, the event that started all of this, which, of course, is the death of uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis. Jonathan, what were your initial thoughts when you when you heard about his death? I was upset, but I wasn't surprised. And the reason why I say that is because as a Black man, I've heard these stories throughout my entire life. So it came to a point of like, oh, here we go again. And I honestly did not feel as though there was going to be any justice for George Floyd um, based on the lack of justice that has happened in times past as it's related to brutality. But I think what was most concerning um, was that, you know, he was crying out and saying that he could not breathe. And at what point uh, do we as a country or do the, the officers or individuals who are racist um, listen to our cries for help when we are saying that we can't breathe, right? That was in a physical sense. But how does that translate into spiritual and other community areas where Black people have been saying for years, I can't breathe, but yet the knee on the neck, this oppression, this pressure 
is still there without any regard to our life force. So those were kind of my immediate reactions. And I've honestly still been processing all of it because it wasn't just George Floyd, right? We, even though that was the most recent, but there were several events that happened with uh, against African-Americans in like this same month. So it's just like, oh my gosh, how much more can I take? And as a Black man in this country, it's just really unfortunate that, you know, I walk around with the same concerns as, you know, with George Floyd. You know, what happens when I come in contact with a police officer who, if I say I can't breathe, but there's no regard for my life because of who I am, right? So that's just kind of how I've been been processing um, that event. Yeah, I'm teaching a U.S. history since World War II class this term, and you know, because of the the weird coincidences of of time, I suppose we've been talking about the civil rights movement over the past two weeks, and so I it was interesting to see that there's kind of a sense that, and I think this is one of the ways that um, a lot of classes are kind of disappointing in that when we've got, especially for history classes, when we are talking about, say, the post-World War II period, uh, a lot of history courses tend to break it down chronologically. And so when you get into the 50s and 60s, we talk about the civil rights movement because it's happening. But then what tends to happen is that when you get to the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 64 and 65, and then um, you get to Martin Luther King's death in 1968, it, the, the, it tends to drop out of the storyline a bit because then we end up going on to other things. Like the next week you go into the 1970s, the 1980s, you start talking about the Reagan years and the end of the Cold War. And civil rights, unfortunately, kind of gets lost from the conversation. And so one of the interesting moments that I was having while reading through comments on discussion boards and all that for the course is that a lot of students kind of arrived at the conclusion that the civil rights problem was kind of solved in the 1960s with the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and all of that, when obviously that's not the case. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, various riots in, in cities, of course, continued through the 1960s, especially after Martin Luther King's death. We, you know, we can point to very dramatic moments within the last 20, 30 years. You've got the LA riots, you've got the Ferguson, you've got all kinds of issues that have been pop- popping up over the last couple of decades. But from the perspective of even a lot of history students, the civil rights movement kind of came to an end in the 1960s. And it's not really something that has to be worried about anymore. And so it was really interesting, obviously, putting that in, putting these episodes or this episode with uh, George Floyd into that context and talking about all the various other stuff that's been happening. The, you know, the, the, the jogger that was killed by, um, uh, by whites in, uh, was that Georgia? Um, yeah, it was in Georgia, right, right down here by me. <laughs> yeah. And, and then just going through, you know, Philando Castile and all those various names have been popping up over the last few years of, of instances of brutality. Uh, it's obviously not a problem that has been solved. And so it's, it's interesting looking at it from a historical perspective and trying to remind people that, no, this stuff is still happening. And we can trace a lot of the stuff that's happening today all the way back 50, 100 150 got, I mean, for race relations in the U.S., we can trace it all the way back to the to the beginning. Right. So, uh, Jeff, what were your initial thoughts when, when you saw the story? I, the, the initial reaction I had, as I've seen it so far, has been universally shared uh, by my colleagues, both working and retired locally, regionally, and across the country. I, it was absolutely reprehensible. It was disgusting. It was har- horrific. And it was myrrh. And, you know, you try to look, uh, you know, there, w- there was nothing there that said to me that th- this officer and, and the officers with him had any right or any reason to do that. So I said, oh, and just like Jonathan said, oh, here we go again, you know. And so the other part of me also said, you know what? I mean, it just takes the wind out of the sails of the 98 percent out there that are doing everything they possibly can to build bridges in the communities, you know, uh, and integrate, doing everything they possibly can to be bridge builders, problem solvers, companions to the community. That's all gone now. Okay. It's all gone uh, with one act like this on top, naturally the other bellwether acts like the jogger, et cetera. Um, but you have millions of contacts between the police and the community that are successful on a daily basis. And we sit there and we all hang our heads and said, Oh, 
here we go again. This one has wiped away all the work we're trying to do. Um, and it's just, it's, it's just awful because it really sets us back. Um, I, I, I can't, I don't, I still to this day don't understand why he was kneeling on his neck. I just don't understand that. You know, um, there's nothing about training that has nothing to do with training. I heard some, you know, some scattered, you know, some, some scattered uh, dialogue. Uh, you know, maybe they have to look at their training. That's not training. That's common sense. That's, that's, that's either, you know, if you don't know the difference between that and cruelty, I mean, so there isn't anyone out there that, uh, you know, in, in my profession, save for, you know, some bad apples that slip through. And I also saw this as, you know, it basically, it's like a fissure opened up in the surface and here comes a volcano because there's so much, you know, there's so much bias and subjectivity going on out there, you know, relative to, and I'm not speaking on behalf of them, but my experience is having grown up in New York and having come on the job in Manchester, New Hampshire with a very close friend of mine who was the first African-American police officer in the history of this city. Those experiences have molded me as a change. I, I like to consider myself an agent of change and working very hard to do that and overcoming subjectivity and bias, you know, in my own agency, et cetera. So I look at this, I said, it's not just the fact that you had some, some, some African-American police officer brutalized or shot or killed. It's, it's, it's those other subtle things that continue to roil and boil beneath the surface, you know, and I saw that and felt that when I was in New York, when I, when I was with my, with my closest friends who happened to be, you know, African-American, I was in musical bands with them, et cetera, work on sports teams with them and going to a club and you hear people drop the N word. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Right. Same thing happened when I came on the job with my friend Cliff retired as U.S. Marshal. You know, you had people that just dropping the N word here and there, even though they thought it was funny, whatever maybe uh, th- those types of things being followed around in a supermarket because you're black, you know, uh, being followed around by loss prevention or et cetera. All these little subtle things that are going on would actually, when I saw that happen, it angered me. And I really think that God really puts us in certain areas that we may not understand at the time, but definitively have a long-term payoff. And um, so before we move on to the next, whatever question, I can leave you with this. Uh, when Cliff and I came up here, I came up from New York. He came from Rhode Island. We both knew the area because we went to St. Anselm College and we had interned with the police department. And we found most people that worked there very nice, very genuine. They were very genuine, very, very nice. Um, well, and when we took the job, we were living at the YMCA. And every night I would go to the newspaper and I said, because I didn't want to live there any longer than we had to while we're in some, you know, the training at the station, et cetera. I say, well, here's an apartment for rent. Here we go, knock on the door. I call up first and I say, hey, it's apartment rent. Yeah, it's, it's for rent, it's available. And we would go and the door would be slammed in our face and they would say, oh, no, it's gone. So, okay, maybe I made a mistake. But after the fifth one, you know, or sixth one, over the course of a week or so, I asked Cliff, I said, Cliff, am I not seeing something here? Because I, I was either so young and naive or the fact that I had grown up, grown up in, a, in an integrated neighborhood, high school, et cetera, I didn't see that happen. I'm sure it did. Um, so I asked him and he literally, literally pointed to his face and said, dude, I said, what, acne? <laughs> what is it? He says, no, I'm black. And I said, Cliff, this is 1979. Not, this is not 1953. Birmingham, what, what, what? You know, and luckily we did find a very open, warm and welcoming, competent couple that had no animosity or bias. They were just great people. But I... That, that I took with me, and that's a long time ago, and it stayed with me throughout the course of my career, where I worked very, very hard to create relate deep and meaningful relationships with the community, minority community. We have a very substantial one in Manchester, you know, we're learning to speak the language, you know, uh, learning to speak uh, Spanish, et cetera, um, you know, working with, working with the African-American communities, et cetera. Um, at one point, they actually made me an official Latino uh, during one of their festivals, et cetera. But I'm not bragging. I'm saying this is something that we're supposed to be doing to overcome, okay, and mitigate the events or prevent prohibit events like this one where police officers like that realize that they have no business being police officers with other police officers who look to make change happen for the better. I, I could not work next to this person. If that, if I was there at that time, I would have pulled him off and I truthfully would have probably arrested him. And I can tell you right now, that's not just me saying that, that I got that, that sentiment has been verbalized to me, vocalized to me across the country. Uh, so I'm, I am angry. I'm frustrated. I want, I'd love to see this solved. And my heart does go out to all the brothers and sister officers out there 
of all colors, all they're all suffering under the weight of this one, one hour or two of this, this, this event. So, um, thank you for asking that question. It's very, very hard to put it all together. Um, you know, to say, give a kind of a coherent response as to, you know, what my reactions and my feelings have been and continue to be. Yeah. And this is certainly a very fluid situation that is still evolving and developing. So I'm sure the, the feelings that we have on all of this could be very different in the next few days, next few weeks, next few years. But I think it's interesting and valuable to kind of take a, a, a snapshot at the moment. Now, you said a minute ago that um, you've heard a lot of people have said that they would probably arrest with someone that was doing that in front of them. Yes. How free do police officers, and I know this is this is a very broad generalization, it's probably an impossible to answer, but how, how free do officers feel to do that kind of thing, to arrest another officer that they see doing something wrong? Is that something that, I mean, happens? Does it ever happen? Does it never happen? Do you have any idea? Yes, it does. The only problem is, you know, you have thousands and thousands of separate police jurisdictions in this country, and they all have their own different philosophy of police service, depending upon the community they're serving, et cetera, depending on the administrative people that, you know, it's, it's, it varies. I can't say 110% every single police officer would react the same way I would, or many of my brothers and sister officers, whatever. Um, But I'm going to say in today's times, I would hope for that the majority of police officers would have done something and at the very least pull him off and, and arrest him. So it's hard to say everyone would, I would hope so. Um, sure. I would hope so, because those other officers who just stood by there are just as guilty as he is. And I, I imagine this must be there must be some sort of a training component to that too, because if it's if it's not emphasized in a, in an officer's training that they can do that, then I imagine the instinctual response is to just kind of I don't want to say shut down, right. but you know let it play out because yeah. you don't you don't you don't feel comfortable, and I imagine that it's got to be difficult to. Yeah. I mean, arresting a fellow officer is a huge deal, I can imagine. And that's going to cause that could potentially cause all kinds of chaos back at the station or wherever if that was to happen. So I imagine it's a, it, it would have to be a pretty big deal for that to happen. It's just, I think, and, and you know the training of officers much better than I do. But yeah. uh, I think that's something that would have to be kind of ingrained in you pretty much all along is that it is that this is something that is acceptable to do in mm-hmm. you know certain circumstances. You don't want to do it every time, obviously, but... In certain now, circumstances, it, there's. I can tell you right now, and I, I'm, you know, how we go to the mats with this one. What he did was is not part of any particular training. You know, when they train, I mean, it is still a very physical job. Unfortunately, people still want to hurt you, and people are going to fight uh, or resist at times. You know, when when you're when they're affecting an arrest. I didn't see this man doing this at all, to be honest with you. But when during the course of quote training about you know physically restraining someone to make a successful and hopefully injury free arrest and honoring the person's civil rights, all those things have to come into play. You know, there is extensive training on basically, you know, the red, green, and the yellow, say, quote, body parts. What you should do where you cannot say, strike to subdue to stop the threat. Um, you know, and the neck is definitively a red zone, red being the most, uh, you know, let's say the most severe. If you were to make contact with that region of the body, then death could result. Uh, so from what he did, if, it, you know, I, I'm going to say, and I feel confident in this, I'll be honest with you, at some point, at some time, someone told that man, that officer in some form of training, don't do that. Okay. Do not crush someone's windpipe. Do not leave them on their chest. Uh, you know, do not do everything you can to avoid asphyxiation of the person you are in, who is in your custody. Once you put somebody in custody, you own there. You own them. In other words, does that mean you 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 are responsible for their care immediately? Okay. If they if they say they have medical problems, medical conditions, you have an obligation to get them uh, medical help right away. Okay. Um, and so you know the, the 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 level of responsibility he had. You could say training, but I think this goes beyond and much further than just. Uh, I don't know if you can train that out of someone to make that kind of ridiculous decision to do that. Uh, it really is more about thinking, critical thinking, hiring processes. Um, you know, and it does speak to retention issues. Uh, you know, it's it can be like in civil service situations, as you guys probably both know, it can be very difficult to remove someone from their position because of union rules, contracts, labor laws, etc. Very, very difficult to do. 
And so there's a lot more at stake about the thought processes that went behind what this what this gentleman had. Now, you know, complaints being what they are, I, from what I understand, this guy had a whole litany of complaints against him over the course of his career. All right. Now, sometimes people complain and they're not they're ba- they're really not. They just basically to, to create some smoke, perhaps. But apparently this there was some this there was some previous issues of aggression or bad conduct. So how does somebody like that stay on the job? And how does somebody like stay on the, on the job comfortably with other people who don't subscribe to that kind of, say, policing? You know, so it, it, there is training part of it, Rob and Jonathan, but this is also the thought processes, retention, hiring standards, what they're looking for. You know, how do you, how do you vet for what a good friend of mine, Chief Dalrish Moss, was speaking tonight. He was the chief of Ferguson post Michael Brown. You know, how do you determine social character, right? How do you measure compassion, you know, on a polygraph, right? How do you measure compassion in a background investigation? How do you measure compassion and physical agility? How do you measure those things that really, really count? Can you lead with your heart, right? How do you do that? I mean, he did, he implemented a great training asset, or I say recruitment asset. And, and, and he had a great saying, which I hang on to, and I throw, I've thrown it on LinkedIn a couple of times. He says, you know, you can train the hand but you've got to teach the heart. And I think it really speaks directly to what happened here with this officer here, that, that he needed some heart training at some point. Yeah, if I can, um, and I know, Rob, I know you probably have another question, but if I want to, I just want to kind of connect to what you just mentioned, Jeff, about um, about heart training and, and that kind of ideology um, around that. So I, for me, what's often very troubling is that when white cops do these things, their heart is not is called into question. The automatic defense is that they follow precautions in certain cases. I'm not really I'm not right. speaking per se to George Floyd, but in any act where there is a person of color, primarily a black person, yep. is the, the question of the heart is not really there because they are quote just doing their job, which though there's some form of dissonance between doing what you're called to do or what you feel like your vocation is and connecting it to the people of whom you are serving, right? If we are supposed to be protected by the police, are we then afraid of that which is supposed to be protecting us? You know, that ideology of, of instilling fear in order for a group a marginalized group to uh, to obey or come into compliance is just a little challenging, right? And so my, my thought even about this, to your point about though the hiring process is, and I don't know, right, but I, and this is police and across other areas that are working with people. What does it look like to have a, a, a test, a psychological assessment to be able to really deep dive into a person's background and their how they were raised before they are even hired to be civil or public servants. That is just really, you know, to not do that background check, that thorough background check is not equitable for the rest of the people who they should be serving, right? So when we look at this again from the, the this aspect of race, then somehow within the system in America, this justice system or this just us system, when, when I'm saying just us, as in those individuals who benefit from white supremacy are, and who don't got a, a, against it, let me add that piece to it, because I do not believe that every person who is white is racist. I am not of that ideology or that belief. But what I'm saying is being that we know that the systems in America are built upon racism and other ways of discrimination, how do we then challenge these systems of oppression when we are in them, right? How are the police chiefs and those individuals who are doing the training, who are leading the units, when individuals like the, the gentleman that killed George Floyd, those who killed others who are who are police um you know why aren't those sanctions for them a lot harder or harsher without it being a response based on what's going on in social media if we did not have social media to really share and the advance in technology to share the cruelty and the brutality that is a part of these individuals character 
It's a part of their heart, which is why I like to live the ideology when Dr. King talked about looking at the content of a person's character. That, uh, that type of assessment should be done prior to hiring someone or people to be a part of a force that is supposed to protect others, especially when the individuals who they are murdering are not threatening. But to weaponize our race as a way to justify killing is just right and 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 to see how media and the court systems and the justice system often makes all of these excuses so that people who are racist get away with murder literally like the tv show how to get away with murder it's you learn this based on what has happened historically and that the only time typically that something becomes as massive right is when it becomes a social media thing and as a result we have protests, we have riots, because the civil unrest of the culture of African people who are in this country is just a point of us being extremely, extremely tired. Again, how many times do we have to say, I can't breathe for the heart of the person who's suffocating us to understand, hey, I literally cannot breathe. But if that person has care about our life because they do not believe that we should exist, then they are supported in their methodology of how they kill us. It just kind of changed from, changed, uh, uh, I would say, the face of in some aspects, if that makes sense. So I just kind of wanted to look that from a deeper kind of contextual and how are these conversations happening in these justice systems that don't call racism racism and don't fire individuals when you know that this is a part of the person's character based on conversations, right? I, and I don't, maybe ratting someone else, probably not the correct terminology, but when you are aware to your point that bad apple in the bunch when do you share about the bad apple and, and take it on up while there is fear associated with that sometimes i get it from exposing your fellow brethren or sister or even if they're a gender nonconformist who are who's on the the team but when do you when do when do you lift that instead of just kind of letting it pass by and letting that toxicity then breed other people who are serving the newbies that could potentially come along, right? I'm thinking about Family Matters. There was an episode of Family Matters where Carl Winslow addressed racial profiling from his fellow uh, officers, right? It was a right, really, right. really powerful. Right? Yeah. And it's just like, you know, and I we see the same things in Law and Order, some of these other things on TV, but for some, to, to Rob, to your point earlier about history, people think that, oh, well, that was back then. It's not happening now. And we it's like that's like turning a deliberate blind eye to what's happening. And that's kind of where I struggle at times is with the deliberate closing of eyes and the deliberate putting on headphones when someone is screaming, I can't breathe because they don't want to be a part of it. Right. So that's kind of. Those are some of my other areas kind of where my personal um, struggle is. And also from a theological and philosophical perspective, as we talk about ethics, right? I'm really like, if there was a really in-depth ethics training, then it will cause some of this stuff to come to the surface. But once it comes to the surface is what's the, the care that's connected to it? How does the person get the help? For their sickness, because I would subsume and say that racism is a form, is a sickness. It is an illness, and it is just continuing, continuously, um, you know, impacting so many others who are injected with this toxicity and knowing that you could potentially get away with it. But if it was a person of color, on the other hand, doing it, oh no, lock them up. Put them in, you know, put them in this institution of slavery, this other institution, <laughs> and, and from being operated, and then just let them be the criminals or the quote thugs, as um, Donald Trump likes to say. Let them be that. When that language is just so loaded and racist, and it promotes a certain agenda, which is at the heart of our country. So, yep. That's all I'm no, you're right about that. And, and in response to that, John, I mean, you've talked about an awful lot, you know, and it, this is definitely a very difficult, it's, it's, it's a 
this is a hydra. This has so many different heads on both sides of the coin. Um, policing is one of the most difficult jobs in the world. I, you know what? I love what I did when I did. I wouldn't do it again. And the reason I say that is because first, first of all, I'm I'm a fan of the demilitarization of the police because it just changes communication styles. It just changes response. It cha- it, it it creates more. Uh, it, it's it's a square peg in a round hole. In some respects, it just doesn't really seem it's an antiquated system. It hasn't changed in 200 years. So I, I'm a fan of the proponent of that because I think you just has to be a flattening of the of the hierarchy and the people would all have to share in this in, in responsibilities, etc. And not all you know it, it, there is some definite definitive flaws. I've done studies on this with a triangle or pyramid for an organization. So that hurts. The other part of it is that is that you know this is why Robin I call this policing free society. More often than not, we don't hear from people who really need us because they're afraid. Where, you know, and so there's a general sense of cynicism that goes on in many communities, in, in, in minority communities, too, that um, they many of them are afraid to call the police. Um, you know, there's that problem there. You know, and we don't hear we don't often hear from people who really appreciate the police, appreciate law and order, you know, um, are in trouble, are battling evil, um, you know, are afraid of the gangs that have taken over their neighborhoods, uh, but they're afraid too. We have to, we have to try to, you know, the, the answer doesn't rest necessarily with just police. It's impossible because we have 330 million people in this country. And I think we're right around maybe a million and a half, maybe 2 million police officers, perhaps line that. So the ratio is just not there. It's not a police state. However, going back to the militarization of policing, you know, deployment responsibilities and requests where where most police officers deployed into the poorer neighborhoods which is one of the old school philosophies you know that's where the trouble happens and that's where you that's where you have to have guardianship you know there's there's that we're not going to be able to change anything Jonathan and Rob unless the community you know really takes a to the best of their ability a more enhanced responsibility for self-care for community care for their schools care uh, and that kicks it up to many of the politicians who've been in office for decades in some of these communities and have and have not really brought home the bacon per se and not really solicit or elicit change in those areas police officers who get frustrated because of a lack of resources you know you're looking at a lot of these areas are policed by professional, you know, uh, professional police officers, well-educated, many of them are of color, uh, et cetera, you know, and unfortunately, like I said, the solutions at hand relative to bad decisions being made, you know, this it, it's really systemic. I think until, and I saw this here in Manchester, I think until we're able to change so many other components of society to make them better, and I mentioned something like schools, education, subscription to education as the only and the best way out of poverty. Um, you see a lot of that has disintegrated or has been as in decline. Uh, lack of resources, uh, you know, to stabilize these neighborhoods, et cetera. Economic redevelopment, et cetera. So, so many people are out in many of these communities that are frustrated, not just with law enforcement, but just frustrated in general because of disparate economic conditions, disparities in salaries, disparity in, in, in school selection and opportunities, et cetera. Oftentimes the media glorification of thug behavior, uh, et cetera. A lot of these things, you know, we the police don't have any control over. That's why it really is up to the community to say, stop. This is what we want from the police. And this is how we'd like to have them operate in our area. You know, this is what we're willing to tolerate. This is what we're not willing to tolerate. And we're going to make noise on behalf of the 99% of those people in those areas, those communities that get up every day, go to work, feed their family, okay, but their grandmother can't walk to the corner store because she's afraid of getting mugged or beaten up or accosted by drug dealers. So those those social issues, those conditions are far-reaching, and there's so much more responsibility to be had to support like I said, the 98% of those police officers who want these neighborhoods to be revived, who want these, you know, who want genuine uh, relationships that contribute to the safe, the safety and well-being of their families, you know, in these areas, um, they, they they want that to happen, and the level of frustration does does happen. Um, the the lack of support does happen. Uh, you know, they've when I was in New York, they laid off half the police department, half. Uh, you know, and the city w- went to hell in a handbasket. So, 
this is again, this is a problem with policing a free society. Um, I think society has become uber reliant upon other services other than themselves. You know, we see the disintegration, the dissolution of some of your your, your so the stalwarts of, of foundation to keep communities strong and safe and together. You know, we've seen churches collapse. We've seen again schools collapse. You know, we've seen infrastructure collapse, and you know, the police aren't necessarily. They're part of that, but they're not necessarily responsible for those things, but they get the aftermath. They feel the frustration, uh, that type of thing. Um, and, and, and it happens. Um, you know, when, when you look at on a daily basis, we're losing through murder two police officers every day. Somebody's shooting and killing police officers every single day. Um, you know, and, and that wears on one, especially because it's usually relegated to the back pages. And these aren't police officers at all white. This is everybody, men, women, black, Chinese, it doesn't matter, that are sacrificing, you know, they're sacrificing their lives every day to try to do the right thing for people. But you don't hear about those. You know, you hear about the bad moments, the poor moments, uh, the police, police officers, police you know, the police department's inability to fix everything they possibly can. Um, when I was a kid growing up in New York, you know, neighbors took care of neighbors. Communities took care of themselves. We didn't need a cop in the neighborhood. We, you know, we, we took care of ourselves. You know, uh, naturally, the family structure has a lot to do with it. You know, our moms were able to stay home at the time, at least to some extent. We didn't have a lot. We didn't have money. But, you know, we had each other. You see the dissolution of that over the course of the last how many decades? You know, the, the breakup of all these support systems that did not tolerate bad decision, did not tolerate Okay, and reinforced it through, you know, um, some a subscription to or adherence to some sort of ethical or moral moral philosophy, whether it's through church or temple, what, whatever it may be. We're seeing those things break down, and on the front lines of that are police officers, and and, and if they're thrust into bad situations over and over again, okay, every you know, it, the the odds are that you're going to have a bad decision made by somebody, you know. Um, that more often that may may have not been motivated by ignorance or racism, but just by their inability to control their anger and their frustration, their level of cynicism, their level of burnout, uh, you know, some mental st stress that can create serious mental problems. You know, I had two friends that I worked with that killed themselves because the job got too much for them. You know, uh, so, but you, the thing about it is we need, the community needs to say, you know, this is what we need from the police, but this is what we need from the schools. And this is what we need from a congressman. And this is what we need from our mayor. And I'm my selectman. Uh, you know, we need resources. We want to build our communities and we need the police to help us so that when we're out there building these communities, you know, we can chase away the fentanyl dealers. We can chase away the, the, the armed robbers. We can get these kids into school, you know, and we can and we can model and and display those people out there in the minority communities that are making a tremendous difference, you know, uh, that unfortunately I don't see enough of. I want, I, you know, that's the heroes we have to put up. Uh, I'd like to see that too. Um, I remember Barack Obama said it, and correct me if I'm wrong, he said, if you don't want this to happen, don't do the crime. Don't do that. Okay, do something constructive for your community so you're not put in a bad situation with a with a jerk cop like this guy. Don't do things like that. And we need to bring those positive moments, those accomplishments that have been made in many of these neighborhoods, thousands of neighborhoods across the country where lives have been saved, lives have been rebuilt, et cetera, et cetera. And they subscribe to like to your, your, your what you said, uh, John, is a, a higher level of moral standards. So there's so much going on at the same time, you know, and, and the police, right, wrong, or indifferent, you take, no one take, force you to take the job, get ready because you're going to be the lightning rod for all of these frustrations, all these, all the anger, all the angst, and you have to do that you can to avoid provoking that. Unfortunately, that's what happened with this one here, you know, stepping on the neck, kicked you know, jump started, you know, the, the volcanic eruption of frustration, anger, emotion. You know, people have been stuck in their apartments and houses for, for weeks upon weeks, lost their jobs. And, you know, so 
unfortunately, that's just the way it is. For, ever since there's been police officers in this country, police officers always, by choice, really have been the fodder for frustration and anger. This is not the first time. I saw it in the 60s. I'm a history buff. We saw anarchists blowing up police stations in Boston at the beginning of the century. We've always, there's always been something like that going on. So, but thank, thanks for that. This, you know, the dialogue has to continue and, and we really have to get down to the roots of some, a lot of these problems and the police just can't do it alone. So one of the things that you both kind of touched on there is, and again, me being the historian, of course, I have to jump, I have to kind of light up whenever I hear people talking about this. Is that you got you both been kind of talking about how this has been a developing process and how things have changed over time to get to where we are today. So, um, you know, my general question, I suppose, now is uh, why did this one become such a big deal? I mean, we've been talking about how. Uh, you know, police brutality or white on black um, murder. This has been going on for a while. We've been, I mean, we've, we, I, I've, you know, I mentioned Philando Castile, but there's also Michael Brown and Eric Garner. There's, and, and um, there's so many examples of that, which did not have the same response that we're seeing today. So what do you, what, what do you both think is different this time that, that sparked this much larger response? I mean, at this point we're talking, protests have been going for almost a week at this point we're recording on uh wednesday and so why why this time what do you do you have any ideas on that jonathan yeah so i think it's it's twofold um and i was just having this conversation with somebody a little bit earlier so there there were several events that happened um during the month of may so there was i think her name was brianna taylor who was shot in her bed um, due to a belief that she was, I guess, harboring a, a suspect or something like that, but she was murdered in her bed, an African-American woman. You had um, Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia who was murdered by a white man who chased him down because he looked, quote, suspicious by individuals. I think one of the persons was, a, uh, I forgot, some sort of, um, Yeah, he was yeah, some prosecutor's office, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was like, you know, weird, but they still, you know, chased, they chased him down. I'm, just, I'm saying that intentionally. And they shot him. He did not have uh, a weapon or wasn't, it was not antagonizing them. They recorded it. We were recording a movie, a lynching movie, um, or just a murder film in that respect of black bodies where they, it was more of them than there was of him. <laughs> but yet he was still a threat and he was murdered. Then you have uh, George Floyd, who was murdered. And then there was the other um, gentleman who was in the park uh, watching birds. Yeah, when, yeah, Central Park, where, you know, he simply asked the Caucasian woman to that, hey, you need to leash your dog because that was the policy of the park. And she threatened by saying, I'm going to call the cops and tell them that a black man is harassing me. And so when you have those four events that happen within like a 30 day time period, already in the midst of a pandemic that is um, uh, disproportionately impacting African-Americans who are dying by the droves because of this. Yes, there are other humans who are dying, but since we're talking about this race component here. So when you have all of that, when African-Americans have already struggled to work and then to lose work due to this pandemic and all of these killings, right? So one thing on top of another, on top of another, on top of another, and thus now we have an eruption because how much more can people take, you know, while already suffering amidst of not knowing if I can go outside and be with my family because I don't know if somebody has COVID-19 and I don't want to contract it. So this kind of sense of isolation, being stuck in a house or stuck wherever for an extended period of time, which has not been a norm, right? but then having these situations happen as a result. And now during the protest, with, I understand, you know, uh, Jeff, thank you for sharing all, all that you shared. Because again, I'm not of these, I'm not supporting these individuals who, during these protests and riots, are committing brutality against 
the police. Like it, you, you can protest without hurling things at them, right? So I'm, I'm not advocating for that, but I'm to your question, Rob. It's more of it's been enough within a, a eight to twelve week time period of being of COVID, <laughs> and then everything that happened with it with those four individuals in that short period of time, it's just, it's a complete uproar. So what we're seeing now, my hypothesis here is is the both and. It's because of the COVID pandemic. And it's also because within a month's time, four African-Americans, well, three of the four are dead. And, you know, now we have these situations where folks are just like, no, what's going to happen to the individuals? And firing people is not sufficient. Because uh, and that's that's the cry of the people. Because if it was us, we will be incarcerated. We will be in the institution. But on the other side, is so many excuses that are, and I guess people are just tired of the excuses that are saving people who are murdering others because they're using their privilege as a white person and their power as a white person to kill black bodies. Right. And so I. I that's kind of the, the cultural unrest at this point. And again, I'm thinking about Billie Holiday's song, Strange Fruit, right? While our bodies are not hanging from the trees, they're more so strange plants because the bodies are on the ground. The blood is still seeping up from the ground. So it's still strange. It should be strange, but it's not, right? So I'm making those those comparisons from that kind of historical perspective, Rob, like you were saying, like, it's just, it's unfortunate. And, you know, my heart grieves from my kind of being an empath, number one, because I don't just feel for the Black community, but the police officers, to your point, Jeff, who are doing their best, who are not the bad apples, but, you know, who won't get noticed, um, you know, because good deeds are being passed over day in and day out. But because of the ones who are doing it and historically, as they continue to get away with it, right? It's like, how many more deaths do we need before somebody, before the group of people, right, that have this practice, this way of life, are taken off of the force? Remove them. Put them in jail. Like, <laughs> let them see what it's like to be, in certain, depending on what person they're in, let them see what it's like to be the minority and to have that, you know, against them in one spot. And, and you know, unless people start really, unless they're able to feel the pressure and sometimes they, they, they just won't know. Um, and they choose not to because they don't want to empathize. Going back to this heart concern, because um, they don't have the capacity or they don't want to have the capacity to feel what us as marginalized um, groups are feeling. So that's my response to to that. Yeah. And I wonder, one of the things that I've been kind of toying around with also is that I've been trying to think about how things are different now between the Michael Brown and and other other incidents in the past. And I've really been kind of coming back to leadership, the, the pure lack of leadership for one thing that we that we have right now especially at the with from the from the federal government i mean the governors and the mayors and the police chiefs everybody is is trying to kind of stumble toward a response but in the past i think what kind of sets this apart at least in my own mind is that in the past presidents have at least tried to present themselves as unifiers and they have tried because usually, you know, the, after the first night or two of protest, there's usually an Oval Office address where the president will go on and try to give a, a, a speech that is empathetic to both sides, that will try to emphasize American commonality, that we all have this common destiny, we all have this common history, we need to work together to go into a glorious, harmonious future. Even if it's lip service, they're at least still making the effort to uh, calm people down. And I don't want to be pretend that it's it, it has too much of a of, of a influence on people, but generally these things do tend to burn themselves out after a few days. The protests tend to tend to stop, and then kind of you know it's back to business as normal. Uh, but like I mentioned before, this one's going on much longer than in the past, and I'm really starting to wonder if part of that is because we don't have a president who's trying to do that type of stuff. Instead, we've got a president who is actively stoking 
you know, one side of the issue. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's been his governing style all along. Uh, so it's no surprise, but it, and, and again, you don't want to put too much agency or power in the, into one person, but I think Americans in general have tended to do that with the president, especially during the 20th century mm-hmm. is that we have kind of imbued the president with like this all knowing, all powerful godlike figure who should be, um, you know, t- fixing this stuff. And we've got one that, that does not. I've been uh, one of the one of my favorite journalists out there is a guy named John Dickerson who works for I think he's on 60 Minutes now. But he talks a lot about how one of the probably the most important job that a president has is empathy is being able to say, you know, be able to adequately reflect what's happening to the American people. And because of our federalist system, a president can't just wave his hand and fix all of the problems, but at least being able to listen to the problems, you know, repeat the problems back in a way that makes sense and speaks to the people that are having those problems. That is one of the most important roles of, of a president. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that, you know, people like Bill Clinton, uh, who were very successful because regardless of, you know, his, you know, personal life shenanigans and all of that, he is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> at telling people that I'm listening to you and I hear what you're saying and I understand what you're saying and I know where, and you know, I don't may not have the answer to where we can go and I may not be able to get it through Congress or something like that, but everybody walks away feeling like at least they were heard. And that tends to calm people down. It's just the idea that we're not being heard, that there is a political class that is actively ignoring the voice uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't really have any data or, or, you know, supporting evidence, but I really think that's playing a role in all of this too, is that there's, there's just been absolute, um, standoffishness from the, the very top levels of government when that is exactly the time that the top levels of government should at least be paying lip, lip service to the problem. Hopefully we would ideally see them taking some sort of, of greater action. And I think we're going to start seeing that probably at the state level. Um, and there are some people in Congress that are trying to do that, but you know, in our present political system or right. political, I don't think anything's going to happen until after the November election at this point. But I think that's, I think that's a contributing factor also. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree with you, uh, Robin, just kind of to jump in about, um, the, our current political climate. So again, you know, uh, Donald Trump is invoking this continuous ideology that violence against minorities is okay. What's more frightening is that his supporters are actually acting these things out. So there is a sense of empowerment from those individuals who are racist because the president is racist. And so when you have the person who's leading the country, who's aligned with their same view saying, yeah, uh, you know, lock them up or go or put them in cages. You know, I know I'm talking about a different situation, but when we have this language that is aggressive and abusive towards marginalized communities, but there's no system of like checks and balances. I know Twitter, I guess, was you know taking off some of his tweets where he's been calling for and and like gaslighting. It's like literally, <laughs> you are throwing gas on these flames and you want people to burn. And the and the fact that people are complying to this is what makes it more challenging, right? Because he would not have as much power in that respect if people were not listening to his words and 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 practicing them right so there's this type of support here from the top from the top that could be viewed as okay from a higher perspective the president has these views he says these views the the you know they've tried to impeach him he's still been in office because nothing that he's doing is terribly egregious but (laughs) it's just like what how does it you know but if it was impacting the majoritarian race i'm sure things would be a little bit different right and that's that's been the struggle here from the like the political climate and even i'm in georgia you know kemp um decided to open up the state really early, knowing that we have all these issues. And Kemp did not have a conversation with the other mayors. You know, I'm in Atlanta. Rioting is happening here. Protesting is happening here. And it's just like, sir, 
like, you know, did you not think a little bit more about what is essential for all of the people, right? Opening up a bowling alley, who, like who who has time to do that when folks don't have money because uh, they don't have a job, right? What, what's the logic? But when one, even who's in that place of political power, does not understand or does not want to take into account their own bias, privilege, and power, we have what we have now, right? Where it's just like, well, I can do it, so you all should be able to do it too. No, no. Or I can do it, and I'm making sure that the rest of y'all can't do it, whoever the y'all is, right? And so it just creates a space where, to the point that was made, I think Robert, you were saying earlier, where people are not being heard. Like, that's Opening up a bowling alley is not what the people have asked for, but what the people have asked for, especially communities of color, is how can we advance in this city of Atlanta that costs so much and y'all are gentrifying the hell out of this damn city? Like, you know, we the, the people can't get on the MARTA to travel to certain areas of town because of gentrification and, and the redlining there. So, you know, but this these things are enforced. They are part of a larger system and you know people are aware of that and and black people are just tired of it and they're calling for some type of social change some transformative social change it's unfortunate that it has to be this way where we have a militaristic from an ideology perspective president who's just like okay whatever they're doing kill them you know tear gas them bomb them that sounds very terroristic Right. And it has an agenda associated with it. But when people are just willing to go at the drop of the dime to go and do it, I then question those people, too, because if more individuals started standing against some of this stuff and making some changes, then, you know, we would see change. But it takes more than the marginalized person to share. It takes those who have the power, who can utilize their privilege to help truly bring equity for the marginalized communities. That's my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the Ross point, I think we put a lot too, we put too much faith in one particular office and that's not good in a, demo, in a democracy, in a republic, you know, to say, um, you know, we definitely need a communicator and a healer. There's no question about it because the best communicators and the best healers, those who promoked, provoked real change, long lasting change were, 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 or were peaceful people going back to either Gandhi, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, etc. They didn't pick up a stick or a rock or a brick and they got things changed. Um, and that's what we need now. We need a, an agent of change who's willing in many respects, unfortunately, to be cast into the pile of other martyrs that have gone before them to come and talk about reconciliation and change. Stop focusing on one particular person, but spread the wealth around. Because if we started depending on one particular person, now we've become hyper-dependent on how somebody else thinks, so they, we think they think. And that is where we give up our freedoms. I, it's, th- what's going on here is my responsibility. What's going on here is my neighbor's responsibility. What's going on here is everyone's responsibility um, in a free country. Uh, so I think in this case here, regardless who is in office, who's in charge of what, uh, we are in charge of ourselves. And I, you know, uh, there's... There's just so much at stake. There's so much power. There's so much competition for scarce resources. We're all hardwired for fairness. Um, I think we have a tendency sometimes to get a little too focused and a little too magnetized uh, to blame. We are to blame. This is our problem. We've all gone to school, highly educated people. You know, we have tremendous amount of creative talent in our communities that is relatively untapped, unheard of, uh, and, you know, and, and sometimes maligned. Um, unfortunately, like I said before, we, you know, we're a, we're a society that's absolutely consume, consumed by the latest beer, the latest pharmaceutical, advan- uh, you know, uh, d- development and the, and the latest person who is singing some sort of misogynistic anti, anti-female song on the radio. Um, you know, we're not glorifying the real change agents out there that are doing things quietly and peacefully in the laboratories and the college campuses and the social service agencies in their, polit- in their local political offices that are making small but significant or even large changes every single day. We don't hear about them. We worry too much about one person, one man, one team, one committee, one administration to say it's all them. You know, and I, he is the worst, you know, not, I'm not a political person, but he's the worst communicator I've ever seen in my life. 
I voted for Obama because he appealed directly, like you said, to my emotions, empathy. He said, I'm going to bring your son home from combat, Jeff. You have my vote. I'm going to address the disparity in income in this country, Jeff. You have my vote. You know, so that now it's my turn. He says, I'm going to do this now. It's your turn to make change. It's your turn to be heard. It's your turn to take, be accountable. It, 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 and, and that's kind of, that's my, that's my soapbox. <laughs> All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see over the next few weeks what happens here, because yeah, this seems to be, we can be in, in this moment of transitional change, like Jonathan said earlier. Well, I think we've, uh, I've, you know, used up enough of all your time. And I know that Jonathan needs to get going here. So um, I think we should just call this a day for now. And hopefully we can pick this up another time soon. So uh, thank you both for joining me today. No, thank you, Rob. Thank you, Jonathan. Outstanding work. Great stuff. Yes, thank you. It was, it's been great. And maybe we could do a part two. <laughs> yes, yes. And thank you all for joining us today. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we hope to make this a regular series on the Working Historians podcast feed, or maybe one day it'll even get its own feed. Let me know what you think, or send along any questions or comments to workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Jeff Zarnack and Jonathan Wesley, I'm Rob Denning. Stay safe and keep fighting the good fight, whatever that might mean to you.